Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are If you're taking notes, go ahead and, and take out your notes and, and be ready to write notes. Be ready to kind of just have conversation with me. I truly believe the book of Colossians, it's hard to say that, right? Really, the whole Bible is very important to us. And the book of Colossians is written for a reason uh, to the church of Colossae in its time, but it's also very important for us even today. Some thousands of years later, it's still, um, we hold it to high regards. So we're in our second part of Colossians in our series, Jesus versus everything. We took a time out and a pause to celebrate uh, Mother's Day. And what an amazing time we had last Sunday with Pastor Rafi here from Puerto Rico. Amen. And so grateful for that, for Sunday. So grateful for the word that he shared, for all the moms. I mean, what a beautiful Mother's Day that um, we had here. But today we're going to continue in our series, Jesus versus Everything. And here's a little something that I have to share with you. Maybe you're here and you're going to listen today to the second part and you missed part one. It is very important that at some point uh, this week, go back and listen to part one. Because part one, when I kicked off the series, I, I went through uh, the framework and why Colossians is written. And, and who was it written to, and, and who wrote it, and, and the purpose, all these different things. And it's very important as we continue to study through the book of Colossians that you know all of that information, and all of that is covered in our first message. So I can't go back and constantly um, speak on that. So that's a little bit of your homework. If you weren't here, make sure you go to part one and you listen to it. How many of you uh, will do that, all right? This week, do it? All right, good. So we're in part two, and I do want to do something. I want to uh, kind of just start where we left off at. Um, in part one, we gave an introduction, and then we read verses one through 20, but we didn't cover all the way to 20. We actually stopped on verse 15, if you remember. How many of you remember part one? And in verse, verses 15 through 20, the, we stopped in verse 15 because those verses all the way to 20 are very important. We, we left off where Paul began to uh, give this information of doctrine, what we would call doctrinal information. And the reason why he's doing this is because he's addressing all of this. Again, it's in part one. He's addressing heresy uh, that entered Colossae, the town of Colossae. And the three things that he's addressing are Jewish legalism. I should have asked you if you remembered. Number one, Jewish legalism. Number two, Gnostic mysticism. And number three, religious asceticism. So go back and, 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 and review what those three things are. And that way you get a feel for what's happening. So Paul is addressing these three things. And we didn't get to read or study all the way through 20. And I want to take my time with that today because when you read these four chapters of Colossians, you'll see that verses 15 through 20 is really the central part. 
It is really the theme of the whole epistle, of the whole letter written by Paul. And that is why I wanted to have one Sunday just to go over what I believe is the heart of the whole letter of Colossians. And that's what I want to do today. Because what Paul is doing is he's taking Jesus, he's taking the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and he's exalting Jesus to his proper place. And I said that last time. For who he is, that he is God, and he begins to write and he begins to exalt Jesus as God. He doesn't take away from his deity. He begins to point to Jesus as God. Amen? For all of you that believe that Jesus is God, should have said amen. Amen. And you may say, well, why? Why does, why does Paul do this? Because he's addressing, he's addressing, like I just told you, he's addressing heresy. He's addressing false teaching. He's addressing false ideology that has crept into the church. How many of you know that this was not just a problem in Colossae? Today, the church still has people and ideas that creep in that are false and they trigger to try to stray away the sheep from the sheepfold. And as leaders and as a pastor, you have to stand up and teach the true word of God. And that's what Paul's doing. That's what Paul's, why he's writing. He has to fix these problems. And he's going to defend Christ. Specifically, he's going to defend the deity of Jesus. What does that mean? That Jesus is God. No and, if, or buts about it. Jesus is God. So let's go ahead and let's start off where we left off in verse 15. Verse 15 might sound repetitive, but then we'll just go straight from there. This is where we left off at. He says this. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. So, so he existed before anything was created. And he is supreme over all creation. Verse 15, as we read through these few verses coming up, is very important as an introduction for today. Because we said this in part one, that the word there for the image, when it says that Jesus is the invisible image, the visible image, forgive me, of the invisible God. You should have written this down in your notes. The word there for image in the Greek is the word icon. It's the word that you and I will later on learn to be translated icon. Icon, I-C-O-N. And the word icon is to be a copy, to be an exact representation in likeness or manifestation of. In the, in the ministry of Jesus, what does Jesus tell his disciples, even some followers? He says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. You know that scripture, hopefully. I want you to think about that for a moment. Show us the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, you're asking me to show you something that if you've looked upon me, you've already seen the Father. That's a bold statement to make. To make a statement like that, you better be sure you know what you're saying. For Jesus to say, to look at me is the same as to look at the Father. 
He is putting himself at the same place as the Father. He is putting himself just as Father is God. Jesus is putting himself as God. Church, you need to understand that. A, a passage that I, I always love because I'm a Christian and I like when Christians, um, how can I say this? When Christians are defended. If you've ever heard in Acts chapter 19, uh, there's a group, of, a group of brothers and their father was a very uh, popular and respected man, a leader of the town. And these brothers, these, they were called the sons of Sceva. You've ever heard of them? In, in Acts 19, Paul begins to cast out demons. I mean, pretty cool gift to have. Just walking around, casting out demons, and pretty amazing. Demons respecting every word you say. I mean, Scripture says that his very garments, he would throw it on the sick, and things like that, and the sick would be healed. I mean, he walked with an authority, Paul. So the sons of Sceva, being um, tricksters and being really into money, they said, oh, we know what we could do. We could do what Paul does, and we could make a lot of money. Let's do that for ourselves. So in Acts 19, there's a man who's demon-possessed. And these brothers, the sons of Sceva, thought for themselves it would be a great idea for us to go to that man who is filled with demons and say, in the name of Jesus, we cast you out. Well, we could do what Paul does. The, the problem with the sons of Sceva is this. Um, sons of Sceva, you're, you're not an icon. And you don't have the icon living in you. What do I mean by that? The sons of Sceva were not the representation or the likeness of Jesus. So when they tried to cast out demons in their town, which they had popularity, wealth, respect, look what happens to them. I'm just going to read verse 16. It says, then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. What did you learn right now? Don't try to represent something and live with the authority of that which you're trying to represent when in reality, it's not alive in you and there is no authority in you. The sons of Sceva thought for themselves, we'll cast out demons and we'll make money. And the demon said, nah, we're going to beat you down and we're going to put you to shame and you're going to run out of town naked, this town that you think you own. The sons of Sceva, they thought they were something until they came across the spiritual realm. They hit a brick wall and they recognized, oh, this is real. And the demons attacked them. It's what Pastor Rafi was preaching last Sunday. See, Jesus, they could have said, oh, he's the same God. The sons of Sceva could have said, the same God as Paul and all of that. But, but Jesus is not your God, sons of Sceva. You may call him Jesus. You may call it the same God. And this is a warning for us, the church. They looked at the sons of Sceva and think about the words that they told them. They said, Jesus, we know. And Paul, we know. 
The demon said, but who are you? Well, what does that mean? What lives inside of Paul, we know him. His name is Jesus, we know him. And because Jesus lives in Paul, we know Paul. But you brothers, who do you think you are? They thought that they could do something when you can't do that or work in that or activate in that if you're not carrying the very icon in you, the very representation, the very presence of the Lord. So, so this is very important as we break down the word image, the word icon. So what is Jesus doing? What is Paul writing here in verse 15? That if you want to see who God is, <clears throat> simple. The answer to know who God is, is just watch Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Look at Jesus. And if you see Jesus, you've seen God the Father. If you've heard Jesus, you've heard the Father. Look at him. He's the developed image of God. He is the image, the visible image of the invisible God. That in you, and now I speak to you personally, is alive the icon or the word icon. In you is alive the exact representation, likeness, manifestation of God. How many of you, is that God alive in you today? Why is he alive? Why is he alive in me? Why is he alive in us? So that we can be the same on earth. And I want you to really ponder on that. Do I give, write this down in your notes actually. Do I bear the image of Christ on earth? Do I bear the image of Christ on earth? That you would be his icon on earth to reveal who God is on earth. I asked this question to you last time and I'm gonna ask it over and over again today. What does Jesus versus everything look like in your, in your own life? Continue to ask yourself that as we go through these verses. What does Jesus versus everything look like? Let's read through this and let's have a good time and let the Lord, and let his word speak to us. Go to verse 16 with me and let's um, enjoy this. It says this, ready? Just as Christ is the visible image of the invisible God and we went through all that, let's keep reading verse 16. It says, for through him, everyone say through him. God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Listen to this. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see. He made thrones and kingdoms rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything, everyone say everything. Yeah, come on, everything. Mm -hmm. That means not one thing, not, not one thing outside of this. Everything was created through him. Everything is created for him. Verse 17, he existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. Christ, he's the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead or the firstborn from those who rise from the dead. He is first in 
everything. I want you to see the heart behind 16 through 18. So important. We, we see here the emphasis. And the emphasis is what we learned last week as in the story there's a main character. And Paul is writing about the main character. Paul is writing about Jesus, and that's what he does with this letter. He's pointing in these verses to the main character, which is Jesus. Who's writing this letter? Paul. I want to ask you a question. Is Paul a respected man during this time that he's writing this? Yes or no? Within the church, he is. Is Paul a known man when he's writing this letter? Yes or no? When he's writing this letter, he is. He's actually in prison in Rome. And the reason why he's in prison in Rome is for preaching the word of God. He's an honored, respected man who's done great things for the Lord during this time. And he's emphasizing on Jesus and Jesus only in, this, in these verses. I feel like this is so important because I've done life with a lot of people and I've done life with a lot of people that have done great things for the Lord, whether they're um, evangelists, missionaries, uh, people that just do things for God in their own town, pastors. And I've come to see where a lot of people really take credit upon themselves. I've seen where a lot of people really put themselves in the forefront. I, I've seen where they become the face of God's ministry. Are you with me? I, I've seen where, where, where people really elevate themselves to draw crowds rather than the gospel and Christ himself drawing the crowds. So when Paul is writing this, what I love about it is he points to Jesus and notice Paul's heart. Paul does not point to himself, not to what he has done, not to what he has achieved, not to what Paul has even sacrificed in his life for Jesus. For goodness sakes, he could have said, look at me, I'm in prison. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't point to any other man or any other deity. Church, I want us to see this. It's Jesus. And if there is any doubt that Jesus is the author of all creation, here is the, here's the answer. There is no doubt. And Paul is making sure that you know that. There's no doubt Jesus is it. Look at verse 16 again. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Whether it's a visible thing or invisible that you can't see. So Paul's introducing there's a world, a realm that you can see with your eyes, and there's a realm that you can't see with your eyes. But though you can't see it, don't you for once think it's not there. And as it's, and as it's there, though you can't see it, know that Christ is the creator of that. Of the things seen and things not seen, whether they're thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, Paul brings it all to this. All things were created through him and for him. So, so he himself, Jesus, creates everything, but Jesus in himself is not a created being. Instead, all things were created by him, scripture says. All things were created through him and all things are for him. So, Let's have some fun here. When we begin to wonder and behold 
the glory of Jesus or the world that Jesus created, it should do one thing to us. It should cause us to worship and honor him even more. So one Bible teacher, he writes about the wonder of Christ and he puts it this way. Listen to this for a moment. He says, comets, comets have a vapor trail up to 10,000 miles long. If you could capture all that vapor and put it in a bottle, imagine that for a moment. The amount of vapor actually present in the bottle would take up less than one cubic inch of space, though it runs 10,000 miles long. It says Saturn's rings are 500,000 miles in circumference, but they're only about a foot thick. If the sun were the size of a beach ball and it was put on top of the Empire State Building, the nearest group of stars would be as far away as Australia is to the Empire State Building. He goes on to say the earth, the earth travels around the sun about eight times the speed of a bullet that is fired from a gun. I like this one. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings on the entire earth. Think about that for a moment. Here's another one. A single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information. You may ask, well, how much information is that? If written in ordinary books, in ordinary language, it would take about 4,000 volumes to cover that. And yet that's how he created us. A Greek scholar by the name of A.T. Robertson says this, all things were created. And it has this idea of all things stand created or remain created. That the preeminence of the universe rests then on Christ far more than on gravity. That instead it really is a Christ-centric universe. How many of you can say amen? Everything lays on Christ. And that's who we serve today. Scripture calls him the firstborn. Everyone say firstborn. He is the firstborn, even the firstborn of the dead. I actually wrote this down in my notes. The firstborn raised from the dead. You may, you may look at this and you, and you can say, oh, wait a minute. He can't really be the firstborn raised from the dead. Because if you study in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, many were raised from the dead. So what, do you, what does he mean by... He's the firstborn of the dead. Well, we're going we're gonna to look at that word firstborn in this text here for a moment. Because this is a very important word as Paul writes this and as we're studying through the book of Colossians and you're going to see it again and again. The word firstborn here is important because someone would grab that word and many do. And this is what they do with that word. They say this, this is why Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God because he was born. And because of that, it is proof. Scripture says it. He's firstborn. He was born. 
He's not God. Many cults have a field day with this. Many cults grab this, and this is their, their standing verse. That because Jesus is the firstborn and he's born, he really can't be God. He's created. He was born. Jehovah's Witness, for example, they love this verse because they'll say that, that Jesus isn't God. He's actually God's firstborn. And that's where Jehovah Witness and all other cults are wrong. It's not that he's born. Write this down in your notes. The word firstborn is a Greek word, and it'll come up on the screen. It's a word called prototokos. It's a funky word, but it's an important word. The word prototokos is different than what we think. It doesn't mean that he was born first. It actually means that he's first in rank, first in priority of importance, of status. So when it says that he's the firstborn, it means first in rank, priority, status, the most important thing. I'll give you some examples in scripture. You don't have to turn to it, but you can write it down. Uh, how many of you know Joseph in the Old Testament? You've ever, you learned of Joseph? Yes. Joseph had two sons, for example. The firstborn son of Joseph was Manasseh. That was his firstborn son, Manasseh. Joseph's secondborn son was Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim. But if you read Jeremiah chapter 31, specifically in verse 9, God says this, for Ephraim is my firstborn. Wait a minute, God is wrong. God doesn't know the word. Because Joseph's firstborn was Manasseh. The prophet Jeremiah writes that the Lord says, for Ephraim, he's my firstborn. So who's wrong here? This is where people who don't study the text properly will say, the Bible is contradictory. The Bible comes against itself. No, God's making a point here. It means this. When God says, I know that Joseph had Manasseh first, and he had Ephraim second, and I know that in Jeremiah, I took that order, and I switched it, and I said, Ephraim is actually my firstborn, and you ask, how is that possible? If he's secondborn, it means that I've taken the second one born chronologically, and I moved them up in rank, I moved them up to status, to number one over the other one. I want you to understand this. Prototokos means first in rank, first in priority, first in order. God, it's not the first time that God does this. He uses the same word in the book of Exodus where he calls Israel his firstborn. Israel, his firstborn. We know in scripture that they didn't come from God. God didn't labor Israel. He didn't birth Israel. So why is God calling Israel his firstborn if they weren't born from him? Because he's giving them the highest rank over all the peoples. I want you to understand what the word firstborn means because now Colossians takes a whole different twist. In Psalm 98, the word firstborn is used to prophesy about Jesus. He says, I will make my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. He says that. So someone may say, 
Well, Jesus is not God because he was born. That's what people will say. That's what cults will say. So our reply to them, as we know scripture, is no. It does not mean that he was born first. It means something way better than that. It means that he is first in rank and first in priority. He is number one in status and no one can come to stand next to him. It's greater than just being born first. It means he is of great and of most importance. That's a whole different meaning in scripture now. Verse 16, come on, all things, everything was created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. He holds all creation together. How many of you like me stress in this life? Oh, okay. And we come before the presence today of the one who holds all things. Like, like, do you and I really have the proper view of God? Do you, I'm, uh, this is what I love about this, I could be upfront with you, because I'm speaking to myself. Do you and I truly have the, pop, the, the proper view of Jesus? That he holds all things together and yet everything in me crumbles because I lose control. Because things didn't go my way. Because life got hard. Because he said this about me. Because they went that way and they didn't invite me. Because they broke my heart. Because they got sick. Because this person died. And we read the scripture and he says, whoa, all things, everything's created through him, for him. He's before all things and in him all things consist. What does that mean? Your pleasures and your pain, all things consist in Jesus. Come on, church. So it's not like he's born first and he's not God. He's before everything, before all things. He's the only person that ever lived before he was born. It's Jesus. He lived before he was born. Think about that for a moment. All right, I'm not done with this. I'm going to continue to exhaust this. John chapter 8, 48, I'm going to prove it to you. Jesus' very own words said what? Before Abraham was, I am. The religious people got mad at him. You're not even 50 years old. How dare you say that Abraham saw your day? He says, no, 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 you're confused. What you don't understand is before Abraham was even there, I was already there. He's claiming deity. I am God. I am the, I am the founder of this foundation called I am everything. Okay, I'm not done. John 1, starting with verse 1. Actually, read all the chapter. don't have time to do that today. But it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made. Wow, amazing that John the author and Paul the author are saying the same thing. Look what he says, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. 
What is John saying? Jesus, he's it. He is before all things. He, I don't know how much more to exhaust this, but in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, for those taking notes, it also says that Jesus is the heir of all things. He holds all things together. Everything consists in him. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, he says. He's the head of the church. How many of you go to church and thought that the church you may have gone to, the church that you're going to today, the pastor, if they've ever made themselves, please, I ask for all of them to please forgive them. But the pastor has never been, will never be, and shall never be the head of the church. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's it. I'm an underling shepherd. I'm a, I'm a shepherd under the great shepherd. That's it. But as, I'm a great, as, as he's the great shepherd and he's put me as an underling shepherd, I'm, I'm a shepherd while yet I'm part of the sheepfold. But don't, don't get us wrong. Never, not for once. We point to him. He is all things. He's the head of this thing. He's the head of every human being that lives. Guess what? Even the ones who have not come to believe in him yet, when their eyes see him in his glory, they're going to recognize that Jesus Christ is the head of their lives, whether they accept it or not. How do you believe that? Because when every man sees him in his glory, man, I'm telling you that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is head of all things. And Paul is trying to say this. Why? Because of the ridiculousness that entered into Colossae. People that walked in with their ideologies. People that walked in with all of their knowledge. And what happens is people that are not rooted in scripture, guess what they do? Someone a little bit smarter than them comes and begins to get into their mind. And you automatically just run to them and say, whoa, they're so knowledgeable. They must be from God. And what they did was they're tricking the church to fool your ideals to stray you away from the sheepfold where eventually your destiny would be hell. And what are they teaching? They're teaching dumb things, all these different beings, all these different spiritual gods, all these different beings being from God. And Paul says, heck no, there's not but one God. It's Jesus versus everything. All things consist in him. All things, everything. He holds it all together. So back to what I said in my notes. He's the firstborn raised from the dead. How if in the Old Testament there was a man, was it Elijah? Was Elijah the one that was dead? And when the man's body touched his bones, he resurrected. Elijah or Elisha, I always forget which prophet. Shah. Think about that for a moment. The prophet's very bones. How about the, the son of the widow? He resurrects. So Jesus is not the firstborn of the dead. He is the highest rank, the first in status, the firstborn of the dead. Prototokos, get it? What does that mean for you now when you serve the Lord? Seriously, what happens tomorrow when, when your boss has a meeting with you and says, I'm sorry, you have to take a pay cut? Or they say that we're going to lay you off. 
or the doctor tells you your child is sick. I mean, it could be good things. What happens when they come knocking on your door and say, do you just want a million dollars? Where's the firstborn? Where's the firstborn? Where's the one of greatest rank? In the highs of life and in the lows of life is the firstborn alive in you. The one of highest rank, of highest status, the most important. So he's number one. Everyone say number one. He's number all. One, two, three, all the He holds everything together. He created everything. He's God's highest in rank and order. I can't stress this enough. But not only that, but when it comes to even us, the people on earth, his very own church, he is the highest. He's the head of us, the body, the church. Come on. Jesus has no competition. So I ask a very personal question to you. What's competing in our lives with Jesus? We're reading Colossians, and we can only be honest. Paul is writing this letter to the church of Colossae, and as he's writing this letter to the church of Colossae, guess what's happening here? There are other beings, there are other ideologies that they're being confronted with, and they're challenging their faith in Jesus. They're challenging their walk in Christ. I'm so sorry to tell you guys this, but there's no way that we could just blame the church of Colossae and say, it's a bunch of idiots without any of us admitting, I'm there right now, I've been there, or if you're not careful, you will be there. Where there will be things in your lives that will rise up and they will challenge your devotion to God. Maybe it's money and it strays you from God. It's like the person that prays for the relationship, they even fasted for it. They went to every singles conference They found a partner, and when they found their partner, they both start walking away from God. I'm like, that's not why God gave you the partner. What is it that should never compete with God? Whatever everything is in Jesus versus everything, everything never stands a chance but it's so important to me, but I need it, but I'm so accustomed to it, but this is what I'm used to. Everything stands no chance when it comes face to face with Jesus, and everything should never compete with the only thing, which is Jesus. As good as everything may feel, you define your everything. There's one thing that remains for sure. There's one thing that has no competition. Jesus versus everything. What's competing with that? With your fellowship, with your community, your secrecies, nothing, nothing competes. And Colossae is at this place and they're looking at others and they're falling for this heresy And I've been, for 20 years now, wow, I feel old. For 20 years, I've been in ministry. And for 20 years, I've seen people fall away from the faith. 
I've seen people be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or at least say they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they become atheists and say, I don't believe in God at all. How far did you go? Colossae and the brothers and sisters of ours in Colossae are looking towards others, are looking towards their ideas, their knowledge. You heard me say this two weeks ago, and I'm not scared to say it again. I'm, the, I'm most likely the least knowledgeable in this church. But that does not take away the call that God has in my life. It doesn't take away that I'm supposed to continue to grow in knowledge. But I don't chase knowledge or the world's wisdom and allow that to win my heart over God's word and God's voice and God's word spoken over me. The church of Colossae is looking at all these other things and it's no different with our age today. That we look for answers elsewhere. Ever been there? I have. I've looked for answers elsewhere. I've looked for truth elsewhere. It's right here. It's, you know how many of these things I have in my house? My wife's here, she can tell you. I have a collection of Bibles. One brother of mine says, what good is a collection of Bibles if you don't ever read them? It's true. You can have the knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding sitting in every corner of your house. But you're looking for answers elsewhere, for truth elsewhere. I know I'm not speaking to myself, but you're looking for satisfaction elsewhere. You're looking for riches elsewhere. You're looking for hope elsewhere. I'm trying to cover everyone here. I'm trying to see where you're at. <laughs> you're searching for fulfillment elsewhere. But guess what? As we read Colossians 1, it tells us something very powerful. Please listen to what I'm about to tell you. In him, all things consist. Wherever you're searching elsewhere, Paul writes a very important statement. I get what you're searching for elsewhere, but in him, all things consist. Does that make sense to you? He is the sustainer. He is what brings everything. He's the unifier. Of all things, sustainer of all things, all things created. So I thought about this. Jesus, though he does and though he did, though he did, Jesus does not have to humble himself. We need to humble ourselves to him. So what are we getting at? Because I'm, about, I'm about to get to verse 19 and 20 and, I, and we're done. Because the Gnostics are in Colossae. And as the Gnostics are in Colossae, they're giving credit to, all, like I said, to these divine powers and all these different spiritual beings. Remember, they begin to even worship all these angels. We've known people. We've known people that have gone to worship angels. 
They begin to do all these weird mystical things and Paul comes in, in this letter. As I wrap this up and he, he begins to gather all this information and he puts it all in Christ and with a full and bold statement, he rests it all upon the deity of Christ. He says, it's Jesus and in Jesus is everything. That's why this series is titled Jesus versus everything. Because if we're transparent and honest in here, do you know how many things I've allowed to sit in the throne that only belongs to God to sit on? And Jesus says, you want me to do things, you want me to, but where I'm supposed to be seated, you have other lovers there. Let's keep reading. Verse 19 and 20, here it is. And then um, once I get to verse, description of verse 20, we'll, we'll wrap it up once I do that. So once, I'm, once I get there, we could start closing. He says, for God, love this. Actually, this is my favorite, pause for a moment. This is actually my favorite verse for whatever reason. Verses 15 through 20, this is actually my favorite part. Look what it says. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. The other translation says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That's a powerful, that's my favorite, that's my favorite verse out of all of these. Let's read verse 20. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven. He made peace with everything on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. Wow. You've, you hear me say this a lot, and I, I don't lie when I say this. You could look at my notes. You could look at the scribble in my Bible. When I read verse 19, I love that verse, and I, I, I ran out of words like you hear me always say. So when I ran out of words, what do I always put? Wow. I just put wow. Because in this verse, it says, it pleases the Father. That in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. I, 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 maybe you don't understand this for a moment. Let me, let me explain this to you. The word dwell there, when it says it pleases the Father where all the fullness should dwell, the word dwell in the Greek, it's not talking about a temporary dwelling. Paul is making it known to us, the reader, and to Colossae, the church, that this is a permanent dwelling. You could come to my house and you could dwell there. But I want you to know something. It's only permanent. There's gonna be a moment where I'm gonna stand up and stretch by the door and say, hey, um, you gotta go. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a dwelling for a little while. It's a temporary dwelling, not a permanent one. When Paul writes this, he's making sure that we understand that this is not a temporary dwelling, but a permanent one, that Jesus 
is not just temporarily God, where deity, remember what I said in part one, falls on him for a little bit moment and then it leaves him and he's temporary God. He's telling all the readers and he's telling the church of Colossae, don't ever forget this, that Jesus has always been, Jesus continues to be, and Jesus will always be permanently God. Jesus versus everything. Actually, for fun's sake, I'll read to you uh, John 15. Jesus even says what Paul says. In John 15, verse 4, he says this, remain in me. That word remain is dwell. It's the same word. Dwell in me and I will dwell in you. Permanent dwelling. How many of you have lived with Christ and your living with Christ is just temporary? It's like an on and off switch. Today I'll serve Christ, today I won't. And you're temporarily dwelling with Jesus. In John 15, he says, no, my calling for you and me in our relationship is not to temporarily dwell with one another. He says, let me permanently dwell with you and you permanently dwell with me. <laughs> Look what he says, so good. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you dwell in me permanently. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. And those who dwell in me and I in them, those who dwell permanently in me and I permanently dwell in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, from dwelling in me permanently, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not dwell in me permanently is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to eventually be burned. Did you get that? The fullness is in Jesus Christ. Come on. The fullness is in Jesus. The dwelling is permanently in Jesus who is God. Come on. The fullness is in Jesus Christ. Come on, it's not in a church. It's not in a priesthood. You know how many people go to a building thinking that they've done the religious duty because they went to a building? The fullness is not found in a building. It's not in a religious activity. It's not in the saints. It's not in a method or it's not in a program. Paul highlights this. Jesus highlights this in John 15. The fullness is in me, is in Jesus Christ himself, he says. It's in him. So that those who want more of God and all that he is can find it solely on Jesus, in Jesus, Christ alone. So I end with this verse, verse 20. And I'm going to read it one more time to you. Because I want to end with hope, encouragement, and I want to end personally with you. He says, through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth. You know how he did this? By the means of the blood, the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb. So what do we read there as we close off with verse 20? That through Jesus and by Jesus, all things are reconciled to God. You could go and do your best and I could go and do my best and go into a confessional booth and confess my life away. 
But that confession is nothing if it's not in Jesus Christ. Jesus. It's through Jesus that all things are reconciled to the Father. Reconciled is a very important word in verse 20. The word reconciled is a word that deals with fully bringing back. So when it says he reconciled us to God, it means to fully bring back to a former state of harmony. And it says, and as he's brought us back, look what he says, he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of the blood of Christ on the cross. I want you to notice where his peace was made perfect. Notice where the peace was made. We don't make our own peace with God. It's Jesus. Jesus made peace for us through him on the work of the cross. Jesus versus everything. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And as we've shared everything we've shared in these last verses 15 through 20, I want you to think about this. Is there anything, is there something in your life that as scripture says in verse 19 and 20, and we close off with these last two verses, I gotta come to a place where in my heart and my soul, I've come to recognize today, yet again, who Jesus is. And as I recognize who Jesus is, I come under his blood. And I believe today, and I know today, that he makes, he makes peace with me. And I can be made at peace with God because of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. The Father, God finds it. God pleases that all the fullness dwells in Christ. So because of that, I come to Christ who makes peace with his blood. And I say, Lord, I surrender myself. I, I humble myself before you so that I could permanently dwell with you. Jesus, you are God and you are to take full supremacy, full preeminence. You are to take the firstborn of my life, to take the highest rank and highest order of my life. Make peace. I humble myself so that I can have peace with you today and that I can dwell with you today permanently for the rest of my life today. Today, if that's you and you needed to hear that from the Lord, you needed the Lord just to confront you in his love and to tell you today, I, I come to show you who I am and I come to allow you to make peace with me. I come and I invite you to permanently dwell with me. I come to make you mine and make myself yours. If that's you right there where you're sitting, can you raise up your hand and surrender? Maybe if you want to raise up both arms and just say, Lord, as a person who surrenders, they lift up arms before you. And I lift up my arms and I lift up my heart and I say, Lord, I surrender this to you. That I will be, that I will make peace today. That you would be my dwelling place permanently. And 
you would dwell in me permanently. Come on, if that's you, can you open up your heart to that right now? Anyone else? says, that's me. I, I need that in my life. Anyone else? If you don't have your hands raised and you are, everything in Scripture is fulfilled in your life, amen. I would love for you to pray with me over these people that have lifted up their hands today. Lord, as they've lifted up your hands, we thank you because their sign of lifting up their hands, it's deeper than a physical sign. It's, it's something within them spiritually that you're doing. Today, they, they surrender and they humble themselves before you. And through verses 15 through 20, they come to recognize that you are the firstborn, that you are the highest rank, the highest status, that you are called to have that in their lives, that nothing is to compete with you in their lives. That, Lord, that you are calling them, that you would be alive in them and be the icon, the, the representation in them that is alive. That you are calling them to live in a permanent bond, a permanent dwelling with you and you with them. That they would come to live in peace with you and you with them because of the blood of Christ that's on the cross, that you've forgiven them and loved them, that it doesn't matter how bad or what evil or what they could have done towards you or against anyone else, the blood of Christ on the cross, it covers their shame, it covers their iniquity, and today you bring them in, Lord. And today you bring them into covenant. You bring them into permanent dwelling. You bring them to a place that Jesus versus everything, it's no comparison, everything humbles itself before you, Jesus. And I pray that over those who have raised their hands, that you would compete with and destroy the everythings that are competing with you and that you would solely be their God. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you for the truth of this scripture as we're learning it. We thank you for this letter written to Colossae that it's also written to this church. We thank you, Lord, for you're so good, for you're so faithful in your word. We love you, Lord. Bless my brothers, my sisters, who have opened up themselves today to this truth and to this word today. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on, together we say, amen. Can you give God some praise?